Hello, and welcome to FBC West a Midweek Bible Study. Typically, in our Bible studies at FBC West, we uh, go through uh, the various books of the Bible, or we'll do topics. Uh, for the next uh, few weeks, I'm not too sure how long we'll be doing this, but I'm going to be answering some questions. Uh, right now, uh, the questions I've already been supplied, they were written, and, and that uh, maybe uh, sometime in the not-too-distant uh, future, we'll be able to have a guest. We'll ask the question. I'll be able to kind of uh, relate to that person and have a conversation about their uh, question and the answer. And so uh, for this evening, we have four questions that have been given to me. Uh, two of them, uh, surprisingly, are interrelated. And I don't know if, if the people asking the question realize that or not, uh, but we'll talk about that later. So the first question is, uh, are the books in the Bible in chronological order? Now, you would think that that would be a simple yes or no answer. But unfortunately, it isn't. In our Bible, as the current situation is, um, it's set out in a particular order. Um, I want you to think about the Bible as a um, kind of like a library, if you will. When you go to a library, we use the Dewey Decimal System, and that allows you to find uh, different. Uh, topics, whether it be American history or world history or uh, geography or whatever. Um, and each culture uh, and, and setting, uh, the scriptures have been arranged differently. So, uh, for instance, in, in the Hebrew setting, the Jewish setting, uh, the Bible was set up with the Torah, the law, uh, there was the first five books, the Pentateuch, and then they had what was called the prophets, and then the writings. And the uh, unusual thing for us is that some of the uh, books in the Bible that we would think are uh, would be a part of, let's say, the prophets or uh, something else, uh, are in the writings. So, for instance, Daniel and Ruth are considered writings as opposed to um, historical. Uh, and so they break the scriptures down, again, the Torah, the law, uh, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, others break it down as the Torah, the historical books, and then the wisdom and poetry writings, and then uh, the prophets. In our Bible, it appears to initially start out chronologically in the sense of you have Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and it keeps going on. And then uh, after uh, Deuteronomy, there's Joshua and Ruth and all those things that seem to, each book seem to be um, concludes, and then the new one seems to pick up the story from there. Um, so we Westerners tend to like chronological order. Um, Eastern thought is not quite so much about chronological order, but themes. And so uh, we, in the appearance, it looks like, okay, well, it goes from Genesis through to at least 2 Kings and appears to be at least somewhat of a, 
uh, chronological order. Then there's chronicles that kind of discusses things that are uh, that have already been discussed in previous sections, and then it goes on. Um, so it's kind of in the English Bible somewhat chronological, although it's not totally chronological. For instance, the book of Job uh, is believed by most scholars to have been talking about Job, who was a contemporary of Abraham. So for it to be truly chronological in the sense of the time period, it would need to interrupt uh, Genesis. But we don't do that. It's placed in. Um, we don't do the prophets interconnected with where they are in the kings, second kings, those types of writings. So they are separated. So it kind of appears to be somewhat chronological, but it isn't in our Bible. Now, there is a set of books that uh, evangelicals and Protestants uh, don't recognize that's the Apocrypha. Uh, those were intertestamentary books. Um, we view them as uh, important writings, but they're not uh, God-inspired. doesn't mean that they're not necessarily true. Uh, it's just that they, when uh, canonized by, by Protestants and uh us, we tended to look at those as simply kind of like historical writings. So kind of give an example. Uh, I might write that uh, I was born July 27th. Uh, my mother was Emily Davis. And my father was Joseph Davis. And I was born in Montebello, California. And my first uh, place that I lived was on a street called Betty in East Los Angeles. All that's true, but it's not God-inspired. And so simply because something is true doesn't necessarily make it, therefore, automatically in the Scriptures. It is God-breathed, and so we take a look at that. Um, and then comes the New Testament. And the New Testament is arranged by the four Gospels, and usually the four Gospels are arranged, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, initially because it was believed early on that Matthew was the first the Gospel writer, uh, later, uh, many people believe Mark was the initial um, gospel writer and Matthew fell on it, and John being uh, the last of the gospel writers. If I kind of had my druthers, I'd probably put uh, Luke at the end of the gospels uh, because his gospel follows up with Acts, which is a continuation of the gospels and what the, the growth of the church. But I didn't get a vote. And then there's the letters which start off with Paul. And again, the, the letters of Paul aren't written in chronological order when he wrote them. Uh, generally, the, the order of Paul's writings are the longest ones go first. So Romans is a longer uh, book than, say, Ephesians. And so it goes first. And then it's marked with Hebrews and then other, if you will, like uh, Peter and um, Jude and those who were a little more um, Jewish related. So they were placed there. And then it concludes with revelations as what's going to take place in the future. And so the long answer is it's kind of partially 
chronological, but not totally chronological, and that you can't really make it chronological because it would interrupt uh, the flow of the story that the God is telling us through the authors. And so, long explanation, but kind of chronological, but not fully, at least the Old Testament. Second question, and the reason I'm bringing up this one is kind of I kind of feel responsible because in one of my uh, messages I talked about how we tend to have favorite uh, scriptures and some that are more well known than others, and then when it comes to other scriptures like the begats or the numbering of the people of Israel, it uh, doesn't seem nearly as exciting. Um, and so the, the question is, is the book of Numbers a census? And if it is, why should we read it? Is it relevant today? Now, I know the book of Numbers is a graveyard of many good intentions of reading the Bible through in a year. The people will do really well. They'll read uh, Genesis and Exodus and, and doing well. Then Leviticus starts talking about, a lot about the law and things that we're not as familiar with. And so we start uh, slowing the pace down, if you will. Then we get the numbers, and it starts right off with, if you will, a census, counting the various tribes, the various families within the tribes coming up with, with a number. And then usually people say, uh, that's it. I'm going back to the Gospels or something, because it, it just seems to be um, really tedious. So I want to help you out. Uh, in the first chapter of, of uh, Numbers, uh, the total number of, of the people of God who left Egypt was 603,550. Large number. People will argue about the number saying, well, uh, maybe the thousands aren't correct and whatever. And um, I tend to believe that it was probably 603,550 people left Egypt. And that's just a the men over 20, that's not the entire group of people that left Egypt. So what that tells me, and one of the reasons I think that God included it, was when Jacob and his family went to Egypt, when Joseph had called them, they went in as a family. But as God had promised to Abraham, his seed would multiply. And when they left Egypt, they didn't leave as a small family if you will, as a nation. And so that's a showing that the number of people that God uh, brought out of Egypt showed not only his strength and power, but the partial fulfillment because he's going to continue on blessing um, Israel. But to show that the promises he made to Abraham are still in effect. Um, at the end, well, towards the end of chapter 26, we're told that they can do another counting, which again makes it difficult to, to read. And we find that there were 1,730 men 20 years and older. So there was a reduction. But when you consider that God was angry with his people because of their sins and wandering in the wilderness and their refusal to take the promised land, when he had told them to do so, uh, while those who failed to enter the promised land died in the wilderness, 
you still brought them into the promised land as a nation. And so while it's not the exact same, when you consider all the people who died from plagues and other judgments of God, uh, the nation was pretty much still intact. And on top of that, it just shows with so many people, uh, with the number of just men, let alone women and children, shows God's ability to provide for his people. And so while, again, like I, I can sympathize with you that reading a bunch of numbers just seems tedious, it does show some of God's power. But I would encourage you to read it because the book of Numbers is not just a census. And it is relevant today because in it, uh, let's talk about some of the things that the book of Numbers talks about. It talks about God's presence, that we see that God's presence would be in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and it would hover over the tabernacle. And when that cloud or fire would lift up, it was a signal for the people to move. And so it was God's presence, and God and the people would, would walk and journey in God's presence. And so it was very important for that. It also talks about God's provision, that God provided in the wilderness manna and water and quail, meat. And so he provided for the people in the wilderness and such a large group of people. Yet God was provide, again, bread of life, the manna and the water sufficient to not only uh, supply the needs of of that large group of people, but their cattle and their oxen and other things that were a part of what they were journeying on. It also shows about God's patience. One of the things that, again, I think is very relevant to us, I think understanding God's um, presence and God's provision is important to remind us how God does that in our lives but also God's patience. Because when you read just how these people grumbled all the time, and it was always, let's go back to Egypt, and how can we brought us out here to die, and those types of things, you could just see how God, important God, would just get frustrated with these people. But yet God is patient, and similarly, He's patient with us. And so seeing that in the nation's actions, we can kind of relate in our personal relationships. Also, there are some great narratives. Now, I use usually the word narrative as opposed to story. The reason I do is we have a tendency to think that stories are not true, that they're just stories. And so I use a narrative, although even a narrative could not be true, but I'm trying to substitute to get you to understand that these things happen, uh, but there's some great narratives. So uh, I'm going to talk about a couple. One of the great narratives is Abraham's rod that budded. Here is this staff, this, this stick that uh, God used to show his favor and appointment of Aaron because Aaron's rod, which was basically a stick that was no longer attached to a living tree, uh, budded as if it were alive. And they then took that uh, rod that budded and placed it in the Ark of the Covenant again, to remind God's people of God's choice of, of who would be the priest. 
And then one of my absolute favorite stories in all the scriptures is about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet, and uh, the enemies of Israel wanted him to uh, prophesy against Israel. And he was looking for a payday, and God had told him not to go, and then God said you could go. And while he was on his way, he's riding this donkey. I could use a different word. Uh, and the donkey sees a angel obstructing the way, and the donkey doesn't want to move, and Balaam, being a typical guy, gets frustrated at the donkey and starts beating him, and the donkey starts talking to him. Why are you hitting me? And those types of things. And Balaam starts having a conversation with him, which to me you would kind of stop and say, wait a minute, I'm talking to a donkey, or in other words, maybe something going on here. So it's just a great story, and that's in numbers. So there are those types of things that are, are teaches us about God and teaches us about, but it also um, can be quite entertaining. So I think that story can overcome some of the statistical information that's there. So I encourage you, I do believe that um, numbers is very relevant. So what I would suggest you do is, maybe speed read through the census part and then see how uh, God uh, deals with his people. There's also some other laws contained in, in the book of Numbers, but it takes place over a large uh, time period. So I, uh, again, I encourage you to, to read it, to study it, and it is relevant for today to encourage us to know about God's presence, about God's provision, about God's patience. And we need all of those in our lives. The next question is, what is the unpardonable sin? That's one of those uh, questions. It's fairly uh, simple uh, to explain, and we're going to read the scriptures that, that relate to it. And, um, but when you hear unpardonable, uh, that gets to be scary. And so um, in Matthew chapter 12, verse uh, 30, 32, it says this. And, and the setting in, in the gospel is Jesus had healed and, and um, cast out a demon. And the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders had, had accused Jesus of casting out uh, this demon based on Beelzebub or Satan. So he's saying, saying that Satan was the one who had the authority to remove the demon, and Jesus was using that power. And so Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. So it shows that no matter while you're alive or after this is all over, there is no forgiveness. And to kind of reiterate that, uh, we find in, in uh, Mark, that uh, in Mark chapter 3, uh, he says this, and starting with verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men 
and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you say about me, but when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then there is no forgiveness. Now, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence to God, or in this instance. So Jesus is saying, you can show contempt or lack of reverence or insulting of the Son of God. But if you do so against the Holy Spirit, if you do that kind of blasphemy, it is unforgivable, which is a scary proposition to think about it. Now, oftentimes when we heard the, hear this, uh, there are times when we can panic. I remember as a, a younger man, there was a particular um, tele pastor, for lack of a better word, who um, I did not have much respect for because I believed that he um, uh, was leading people in the wrong way and was looking at the, you know, you send me in money and God will be impressed. Well, I never said that uh, he was operated under Satan I didn't think certainly he was operating under the Holy Spirit, although I didn't accuse him of that. But having saw this and having had made those statements, it kind of panicked me that, uh-oh, maybe I committed it. And there, I've seen other Christians who, when we talk about this, kind of panic because we know that sometimes, as Jesus will discuss later, some of the just loose lips that we have and some of the uh, things that we say that maybe we shouldn't say uh, are going to be held accountable to. Uh, so let me say that if you're worried that you committed the unpardonable sin, you didn't commit the unpardonable sin. Because if you were worried about it, then the Spirit's still dealing with you. But if you just don't care, that may be a sign. And so... Um, the interesting thing is, is that uh, we come to faith through Christ, the Son of God, and yet it is the Holy Spirit that draws us to him. Uh, Jesus says that, that I must go so that he comes and that where he is, he can do much more than Jesus does because the Holy Spirit influences and indwells in each of the believers and so we can have a worldwide impact where Jesus, during his earthly ministry, had a simple geographical limitation to where he was at the time. And so um, the Holy Spirit doesn't bring attention to itself, but the Holy Spirit is very, very necessary into bringing people to faith. And so um, we need to be cautious uh, not only when it comes to the Holy Spirit in the sense of attributing uh, things or not things to Him, but also, as the Scriptures will say, make sure that we are aware that every idle word that we say we may be held accountable to. 
the fortunate thing is all those idle words that we say can be forgiven, but not the unpardonable sin. Now, there's going to be an example in the scriptures of where that applies. And that's why I say that the, um, the, these two, the next question is very much related to the first question. And this, the next question, last question that we'll take a look at tonight is, why did Jesus speak in parables? And so we find that uh, Jesus uh, does speak in parables. Um, we also see that, um, I mean, I'm going to be going to Isaiah first because that will show us um, the background of this. And so taking a look at what Jesus had talked about the unpardonable sin, he said that, in essence, the Pharisees and the Jews who were with Jesus at the time and accused him of removing the demon based on the power of Satan and not based on the Holy Spirit and God, that in essence, that is an unpardonable sin. And so Isaiah says this um, many centuries beforehand. And the context here is that Isaiah sees the throne of God and sees the seraphim and the cherubim and all that and the holiness of who God is. And his response after seeing that says, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean. He acknowledges when he sees God that he, no matter how impressive he might think his goodness is, he is a sinner. And so he says that, um, that he is a unclean. And so when that happens and that confession is made, an angel goes and, and picks up a, a tongue of, of a coal, places it on uh, Isaiah's lips, and clean, cleanses him. And as a result of that, this is what happens in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so God is saying, I'm looking for volunteers that have a message to give. Who is it that will send? And after having been cleansed by God, we see, he says, Then I said, Here I am, send me. Notice as soon as God cleanses Isaiah, his response is, I'll serve God. And that should be our automatic response, having experienced God's cleansing our lives, forgiving us and setting us anew. When he says, who shall go for me? Our hands ought to be raised saying, here am I, send me. Now notice the message and the uh, projected response and success. He said, that's God. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. 
Otherwise, they might see their, with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So the message is, I'm going to go and I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you my word, but the people aren't going to listen. The people aren't going to see. They're not going to understand. They're going to reject the message. Now, when you hear so many people today, you think, well, to do God's will, there must be success. Not saying, no, there's going to be no success. The success is they're going to hear the word, but they're not going to understand it. And then he says, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitants and houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. So he's saying, basically, as long as it takes for everything to fall apart. I bet if Isaiah knew that first, he might not have volunteered so quickly. But again, the obligation is to do what God has called him to do. And Isaiah does what he calls him to do. Now, why is this important? Because not only is um, God telling Isaiah what to do, but there's kind of a dual uh, revelation here. It's going to apply to the people in Isaiah's time, but it's also going to apply to the people in Jesus's time. And so Jesus will be talking in parables. And even the disciples sometimes get, we're not quite catching the parables. We don't quite understand what they mean. Now, fortunately, uh, for most of us, we've been in church or we've been reading the Bible long enough that we've seen some of the uh, parables and then the scriptures in most, many of the really important ones, like the sower. Um, Jesus gives a understanding of that scripture. So he lets his disciples know what it means. And so um, they get that understanding because Jesus gives it to him. Um, so notice uh, the disciples will come to him in, in verse 10 of chapter 13 of Matthew. And it says this, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? So he's going, Why aren't you speaking plainly? Why aren't you saying um, you know, the pink kingdom of God is not like a mustard seed, but that it starts small. Why are you doing these things? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So he goes, I'm going to give you, on the parables you don't understand, or the parables that may seem difficult to understand, I'm going to give you explanation for them. But not to them. As he says, so it's granted you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but not to them. It has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, 
You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. So in essence, Jesus is saying, because they committed the unpardonable sin, because they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking so that they hear the words, they see my actions, but it never comes to faith. Because if I were to be plain with them, they would then hear, understand, and repent, but they can't because they committed the unpardonable sin. They are not going to be forgiven. And then he says, But blessed are your eyes and because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying, you are having the benefit of the Son of God teaching you and dwelling with you and giving you the Word of God and teaching you and growing your faith. You are blessed. There are other people who would have loved to be in your shoes but didn't have the opportunity. You are blessed. We are too blessed. While I think it would have been awesome to have journeyed with Jesus, to sit at his feet and hear what he had to say, and to hear from him the, the words of wisdom and the words of forgiveness and the words of compassion and love. I have these. I hear his words. And not only do I am I blessed because I've heard these parables, but he has given us in his word the explanation so that we might hear and understand, see and believe. And so we are blessed. And so the reason that Jesus spoke in parables is that when it came to the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were not only opposing him, not only sought to see that he was stoned and rejected and all those things, but they attributed his ministry to Satan. And when you take that view of the Son of God, then there is no hope for you. As a God turned his back on them for that. So the unpardonable sin is a very serious sin because it won't be forgiven in this age or the one to come. And the Pharisees realized that, but too late. And so when we see in the Gospels how hard-hearted the Pharisees were and the religious leaders and others, should not surprise us because they were never going to be given the opportunity to see, hear, and understand because they committed the unpardonable sin. Now, if they had not done that, Jesus's ministry may have been a little more plain. He may have taught a little more understandingly. 
But Isaiah foretold not only what would happen in Isaiah's lifetime, but what happened in Jesus's lifetime as well. And so the encouraging thing that I will give to you is that long as it is today, we always have the opportunity to address him, to find more faith, for our faith to grow stronger and to see and to hear and to understand. It's not too late until it's too late. And so uh, I hope this has been helpful. Um, why he spoke in parables. Um, I know some people may think that it's harsh. But when you consider what the Son of God did, how he came from heaven, became a man, walked and dwelt among us, and was beaten and abused and scourged and crucified and mocked. And he still said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. You can speak all kinds of evil against the Son of God. And some people may have done so. I know many people don't believe he's the Son of God. Many people, uh, the only time they ever talk about Jesus is the, or Christ is to use it as a curse word. All that's forgivable, but not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Spirit draws us to you that your spirit teaches us, that your spirit encourages us, that your spirit causes us to become your children. We thank you that Jesus forgives us when we deny him, when we reject him, when we don't follow him. And yet he still forgives. You're still patient. You're still providing. You're still all of those things that you are because of who you are in your love. God, we thank you that you've given us eyes that can see and ears that can hear and a mind that can understand. We just ask God that your spirit would be more clear to us that it would be more obvious to us and that we might follow you and that after having been cleansed, that we might be like Isaiah. Here I am. Send me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.